0: Obviously, Maximum Harm was a three-and-a-half-year investigation into what took place really before those bombs were detonated. And when the FBI director, James Comey, got fired, I was not at all surprised, because the FBI had such a hand in this case that I, I think it was worthy of discussion, and we know that the FBI steadfastly refused to cooperate with any congressional investigations, wouldn't answer any questions from Congress, it got so bad that a bipartisan group of congressional lawmakers had to go to Russia with Steven Seagal, the Hollywood actor. So that goes to show you that they had something to hide. And what this book proves is that Timon Zania, the older brother, was the whitey brother of the jihad.
1: The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back everyone to Crime and Entertainment. I am your host, Hollywood Wade. We would like to start off this episode by wishing a happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there that are listeners of this show, all the mothers that are pulling the fatherly duties as well. Happy Father's Day to you, we appreciate you, and again, we hope all the fathers enjoy their day. And we hope you're enjoying it by sitting back and listening to this episode of Crime and Entertainment. And we also hoped everyone enjoyed last week's episode with former FBI agent Giovanni Rocco, who went undercover in the Cavalcanti crime family out of New Jersey, which obviously we uh, discussed, they were the basis of the HBO hit series, The Sopranos. We hope everyone enjoyed that. If you didn't go back and listen to it, it was a great one. Now today on the show, I am very excited because we have best-selling author, five-time Emmy-nominated investigative reporter, award-winning journalist, Michelle McPhee. Michelle has been covering these types of things that we talk about on this show for decades, ladies and gentlemen. Terrorism, murder, mobsters, corruption, She's done it all, so she was a natural fit here for crime and entertainment, and she so graciously come on the show. And I really enjoyed this episode. I hope to have her back. She just, she doesn't hold her tongue. She speaks her mind, uh, you know, and I'm a huge fan of hers, her books. And, uh, you know, obviously she was working with Tom Fontana on the show City on a Hill, if any of you guys have ever seen that fantastic show. And I was just delighted she was able to join us on the show this week. So people, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I'm going to let her tell you this story is only she can. And we're going to get right into it here with Michelle McPhee on crime and entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to crime and entertainment. We have here a very special guest. She's an author, talk radio host, five-time Emmy nominated investigative journalist, she has done a lot of stuff. Even worked on the new city, a uh, new show, "City on a Hill" with Tom Fontana. Please welcome Michelle McPhee. Michelle, how you doing?
0: I am so happy to be here with you. And I think we should take a poll on whose accent. <laughs> is, uh... <laughs> who's the thicker We're here healing. <laughs> yeah you're, you're gonna win that one hands
1: down i i don't know i mean my southern fans are gonna be used to me your boss doing this is pretty thick itself but uh hopefully everybody can understand this and get get through this episode because you've got a lot of a lot of accolades man you've got a ton of great books um you've you've got a, accomplished a lot in your career and that's kind of what i want to talk about here because you know it's your first time on the show. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and then the steps you took to getting into this life, like being in, you know, news broadcasting and things like that.
0: Oh, I love this question because nobody does it anymore. How I broke into the business was I was an intern at the Boston Globe and there's two newspapers. Boston is still kind of a new- true newspaper town. It's always sad when you see the death of newspapers because that's the death of accountability. But I was in college and, there was an internship program at the Boston Globe. And at the time, they did not offer the program to state school kids. So I saw that immediately as class discrimination. So you're not going to invite the state school kids that were literally across the street. We could walk to the Globe. So there was a guy back then who used to wave a giant Irish flag outside the Globe and claim that the Globe was anti-Irish. I thought this was as good a time as any as to say that they were discriminating against state school kids. Needless to say, that was a short-lived protest. And I got into the Globe's vaunted co-op program. I was supposed to be like, you know, handing out coffee, sorting faxes. That's how long ago it was. We still had fax machines. Right. And there was this big massacre at a 99 restaurant. And I knew everybody. I knew the dead guys. I knew the mobsters who did the shooting. I knew the dad that went on the lam. And because of that, I broke. I got to break into the business. So instead of getting everybody their coffee, they let me write some stories because I was breaking news. And then a magazine editor invited me into his office and said, write a magazine story.
1: Now, which, and that was that. Which shooting was that?
0: It's one of my favorite of all time. I think you and I talked about it a little bit.
1: I, may, I may have interviewed a guy that was supposedly, he was supposed to be there, actually. Yeah.
0: Well, his whole family was there. If we're talking about yeah.
1: Bobby Luisi, yeah.
0: Bobby Luisi, AKA, at least in WITSEC, the <laughs> Reverend Alphonse Esposito from Memphis, <laughs> Tennessee. Could you imagine a guy with an accent like mine hiding out in the witness protection program as a preacher who's supposed to be from Memphis, Tennessee? And he's from the same neighborhood that I'm from yeah in the north end.
1: yeah, that one would have stuck out a little bit to me.
0: <laughs> I think it might have right? yeah so Bobby so in a weird way, Bobby Luisi gave me and his family and that massacre gave me my start in journalism but gave me a head start. Uh, but when my big magazine story came out, Bobby Luisi's cousin put a gun to my head in the middle of a broad I don't know why people say broad daylight. I know it's a cliche, but in the middle of the day, yeah. It was like this ambush out of a movie where cars just sort of circled me and a friend of mine that was rollerblading. Needless to say, he never spoke to me again. <laughs> they threw him in the ground and they put me on a bench in front of a well known restaurant in the North End on Hanover Street and said, If you ever write one more word about my family, I'm going to kill you. So I didn't call the cops because we didn't do that from our neighborhood. Right. And I called a well known journalist named Kevin Cullen who covered the mob. Kevin Cullen called a guy named, and I I wouldn't know this for years and years and years, he called a state police trooper named Bobby Long. And uh, Bobby is very well known because he was the state trooper who built all the cases against Whitey Bulger, and the FBI was secretly thwarting him at every turn. So this whole circle of my life that began in the late 1990s is still (laughs) actively in my circle today. Obviously, decades later, and the Bobby Luisi story is one of them wow. you know I he I'm sure he told you about how he decided to cooperate yeah, and he gave up he gave up a ton of big name people in Philadelphia. you know Boston back then was sort of a umbrella to Philly. we answered to Philly when, right. when Raymond Patriaca died, there was a power vacuum right and frankly, Bobby Luisi was not going to fill it he needed he right. couldn't run things. Yeah. So I know, you know, a little bit about the Bobby Luisi story, but that's how I got my start.
1: And that's why even when, when Raymond died, his son, Raymond jr. Took over. I don't think he was very well respected or received either. Um, so there was kind of a big power vacuum there. And I'd never heard at that time that from guys going like from Boston, going to Philly, getting made, and then coming back to Boston. I wasn't even aware that it operated like that.
0: It wasn't that they got made in Philly, because remember, we had the only mafia initiation ceremony that was infiltrated by the FBI. Yeah, yeah, the only one. Yeah. And it was in um, Medford, Massachusetts, which is, you know, a heavily Italian neighborhood Mm -hmm. and they bugged the whole thing. And, you know, there were friends of mine's dads who were there. They'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, this is this is stuff that we grew up with. Obviously. And, and when you want to be a journalist, it gives you a leg up because you have some credibility. You're from the neighborhood. So in Boston, especially with parochial, Hey, the girl's from the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and you mentioned Whitey Bolger too, a lot to be said about him and, and the corruption that went on with that. Um, you know, I talked with Bobby about this and I'll get, I'm interested in your take on it. You know, obviously the movies and everything portray him to be a certain way. Um, Bobby agreed that Whitey was definitely violent and a tough guy, but that his, I guess maybe his clout wasn't as high as it was made out to be. What do you think?
0: Well, look, this is a guy who got a free pass to commit murder from his corrupt FBI handlers. Right. right. So how tough do you have to be when you have the FBI behind you? Right. <laughs> and he still had a reputation. Look, there are some people who say that Whitey Bulger has the criminal history in San Francisco for, you know, being a, a, a hustler, a, a sex worker. So he kicked with both feet, as we say, in Boston, um, which n- they never portray. The The movie with Johnny Depp that talked about, they tried to sympath- make him sympathetic, this mm-hmm. murderous guy who ripped the teeth out of women. I have zeroes. I'm not one of these whitey, balder fanatics who thinks he, you know, he saved Sophie. It, it's, it, it's become this legend that has been cemented by yuppies who move into Southie. this idea that whitey saved the neighborhood from crime whitey was a one-man crime wave, and he had the help of the fbi and there were so many kids that jumped off of rooftops because whitey was supplying the drugs if he wasn't killing your father he was feeding your brother drugs and they were jumping off of a roof so frankly that's i do agree with bobby louise on that i mean people from Boston do not have a lot of respect for Whitey. However, that being said, I would love to know why no one has been charged with killing him three years later after he was wheeled into general pop, which never happens.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Where four of his enemies from Boston were waiting, which never happens. And somehow they had enough time to beat this guy with a lock in a sock to death, then take a serrated spoon and carve out his eyes and try to cut out his tongue with a rumpful of other inmates and prison guards, cameras everywhere. And we don't know how or why, why he died. <laughs> I mean, it does, it does raise a little bit of an eyebrow. It, it sounds you like know. you're saying
1: there was a conspiracy there. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, can you explain it? Can you, can you, I,
1: I, I, I I'll put right it this like, way. I was not shocked that it happened. Um, but nowadays, especially like you said, with so many cameras and there's got to be the more people that are in on certain things, the harder it is to keep quiet. And like you said, for three years for the, all the stuff that had to be in place and quote unquote, maybe things not working, people not looking. It's a lot of people that had to be in on that for it to go down the way it did. And then still nobody is, is charged for it. I guess maybe they're just saying he got what he deserved. Maybe. I I don't know how it's looked at, but still murder.
0: Look at that low life that just shot up the supermarket in Buffalo. Oh God. Put him in general pop. That's it. Yeah. That's enough. You wanted to worry about general it. pop. Then, then problem solved because a guy like that deserves general population. And I'm not going to cry. No, if he's ripped, ripped apart in the yard because what he did was so heinous. And now on top of it, he is granted more protection than a low level drug dealer. Yeah. Who has to face the dangers of, you know, being in a jail cell. Day after day after day, and low life like this, this Nazi wannabe dirtbag, you know, this guy is going to be protected.
1: No, we had the, that same thing bait. down here in Charleston. I don't know if you remember, it was, uh, maybe six. Yeah, Dylan Roof uh, shot all those kids down here. I mean, the same thing. And then they were, they, he had to get in protective custody. Now, somebody actually got to him down here. Um, I don't know at what part of the jail, but they beat him up pretty good. And then after that, they had him, you know, put off in protective custody. Like you said, they protect them more than, than anybody else when they should be the least protected.
0: I completely agree. That's when you you argue for General Pop. Yeah. But we all know that Whitey was not supposed to be a General Pop. Right. Because he spent all those years in what they call the cheese factory, just mm-hmm. like Bobby Luisi did. The cheese factory for obvious reasons is where they put the cooperators so you know whitey was a guy that had spent the time the little time that he had in jail you know in segregation then suddenly (laughs) listen they have committees to make sure that michelle mcphee from boston is not in there with you know another boston notorious criminal they have committees to make sure that doesn't happen that you're not put into a jail environment with your compatriots yeah one of the perps that they believe killed whitey one of them was a co-defendant of cadillac frank salemi Mm -hmm. you might recall was was convicted right before i mean come on you're gonna put cadillac frank salemi's co-defendant in the same cell block as whitey that is i mean i guess it's homicide by fellow inmate i don't know but yeah it's either the
1: worst mistake you can make or on purpose and i gotta (laughs) believe probably the latter
0: (laughs) well when you consider look i i've spent a lot of my career writing about the top echelon informant program and about how look informants are a necessary evil you have to get into bed with dirty people Mm -hmm. in order to get into dirty places, right? Swans don't swim in sewers. We all know that. So you're not going to get a swan to go into a sewer. So we have to get sewer rats to go into a sewer. And I understand why it's important, but I also believe that when it goes terribly wrong, like it did for Whitey Bulger, like it did for another guy from Bobby Luisi, probably knows Mark Rossetti very well. Another guy who was given a, a, free pass to deal drugs and commit crimes and acts of violence you know and as you know my book the on the Boston Marathon bombing makes Mm -hmm. the same argument that Tamlins and I was working for the alphabet soup of the federal government and when he he was made a promise which is you help us we'll get you citizenship we know he was motivated to get that citizenship and when he didn't get it he got mad
1: that's something, that's something I wanted to talk to you about a little bit more. I want to expand a little bit on that because I never heard that before until I started researching, you know, some of your books and listening to some of the podcasts and stuff that you had been on. I never heard that. And I think that's a lot of, when I started doing this podcast and, and talking and interviewing people, that's one of the things that struck me is when I would, you know, interview somebody and they would give me a piece of information and I would say that to people, they'd be like, well, I never heard that. A lot of things get suppressed, uh, especially like what you're talking about. So, kind of give our audience a little bit more in depth insight into what you were just saying there.
0: And I love that word suppressed because it, it, there's really no explanation for the lack of investigative journalism that goes on in a lot of these big cases, including the Boston Marathon bombing. Everything. Well, you've heard, you heard the interviews on my podcast, Mayhem Mm -hmm. with Michelle McPhee. These are not, these are not shadowy figures. It's the Boston police commissioner. It's the head of the SWAT teams. It's the guy who arrested individuals who are connected to the bombers. It's like, these were high ranking people in law enforcement, very connected to this case, who are still irate that the FBI refuses to cooperate. You heard, I'm sure, if you listen to it, Congress, when was the last time you had A right wing guy like Mike McCall from Texas and a liberal progressive like Bill Keating from Massachusetts, a Republican and a Democrat agree on anything. Yeah. But both of those guys expressed outer outrage that the FBI could ignore a congressional subpoena. You know, Congress's job, the House Intelligence Committee, the the Senate Intelligence Committee, their job is to explore what goes wrong in something like 9-11, the Boston Marathon attack. The Pulse nightclub shooting, the Dylan Roof event, whatever right. it is, it's their job, and and the idea that the FBI can blow off a subpoena and say screw you to Congress should be unacceptable to every American. Absolutely. Or why? I mean, if there's this conversation all over the nation about overhauling police and you know taking a hard look and at policing, but have you ever heard that same conversation be leveled at federal agencies like the FBI? No. Never ever. Mm-mm. So yeah, it's it's you know, right this minute I'm writing a story about an FBI agent from San Francisco, high ranking top security clearance. And he was moonlighting for the Armenian mob. And apparently no one noticed when the guy was wearing Rolexes and driving a brand new Ducati and bought two houses on Lake Tahoe. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was ridiculous. The guy's making 80 grand a year and all of a sudden, you know, he's he's driving around in the Armenian mob's Rolls Royce phantom right like come on like pay attention and if and if a police officer got away with that he'd be in jail
1: yeah no for sure uh i don't know if you ever heard uh or seen that documentary the seven five with uh michael dowd yeah. um that's one of the better documentaries i think that I'd, I'd ever seen and i hadn't heard of that story until i seen that documentary and a lot of what you were saying he was like a regular detective and he was pulling up in Corvettes and got houses and condos down here in Myrtle beach near where I am. And he said he was parking in like the police commissioner's parking spot. I mean, that's just begging to be made an example of to a certain extent.
0: And they did make an experience. I have yeah. heard a lot about Michael Down. Yeah. Someone leaked it to me when he got released from prison. And, you know, he went from this swaggering wannabe tough guy who thought he was a monster to kind of like this shriveled up dude living in a halfway house for ex-cons <laughs> in the middle of like a dump area of Brooklyn. So he got his in the end. And hopefully this FBI agent, Bob Ekromond, will get his too. But I just... I. It really bothers me that this conversation never turns to accountability w- with the federal agencies who are largely responsible for keeping us safe from terrorism. Yeah. So the idea that we don't hold them accountable and these same attacks happen over and over and over again, I, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. And the Boston Marathon is a glaring example of it. I, you know, and I think I told you this. The reason I was so obsessed with the Boston Marathon is because I was at ground zero on nine eleven. I worked at one police plaza. I lost a lot of personal friends that day as a reporter who covered, you know, the FDNY and the NYPD. You, know, oh, that, you were so there personal. on 9-11? I was there on 9-11. Wow. And, and, you know, I had just written a story about a friend of mine, um, Captain Timmy Stackpole. He almost died in a fire a couple of years earlier. And he, I had a front page story on August 31st, back from the brink. And it chokes me up every time I think about it. I had followed him and his family. He had a lovely family. I became very close to them. His fellow firefighters took care of everything while he was sick and recovering and built an addition on his house. And, you know, it was a beautiful story. And he could have retired and been fine and gotten a big settlement because the building was, you know, shoddy. They're the type of people that they got a check and put it in the China cabinet because they didn't know what to do with it, right? Like all he cared about was getting back to work. And he went back to work on August 31st and died 11 days later. And I I just remember falling on the ground when the police commissioner, when the fire commissioner, Tommy Von Essen, told me that. And it was the last thing I wrote in my notebook, but I stayed there until the very next day. So I had a personal stake in what happened on 9-11. Friends of mine died. I spent the next five years writing about these victims so that today, and believe me, people have reached out to me, so I'm glad I did it. Today, the kids who were babies then have stories about how heroic their mother, their father, the firefighter, the cop died, like what they right. did to save people. And I spent the next five years writing those stories. So it really it really infuriates me that to this day, we're not getting the whole story on 9-11 and the families of the victims are suing the federal government. Obama. Well, let's start with Bush, Obama. Trump and now Biden are thwarting our own 9-11 families from getting the truth. And so that, the families are trying. So you talk about that a little because it's infuriating. Right? No,
1: that was one thing that when Trump was running for president, when he was going against Hillary, that was one of the reasons why I was hoping like hell he was going to win Because he said that was one of the things that he said he was going to do. He said, I'm going to get to the bottom of nine 11. I'm going to find out what happened. I'm going to release documents. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to know the truth. And that was one of the things that I was really wanting, because like you, all these years later, we're getting cloak and dagger um, you know, we're not getting the truth. I don't think, I don't know if we'll ever get it, but I know good and well, we're not being told the truth. Um, I don't know your opinions. Like, I know there's all sorts of like conspiracy theories and things like that. I mean, obviously we know planes hit that world trade center. Uh, I do believe that we probably had some prior information that maybe wasn't as taken as serious as it should be. And like I think the, it are like the
0: fact like the and I'm sorry, but sorry to interrupt, but you just got me so excited. <laughs> like the fact it just came out in this lawsuit that the families have that one of the hijackers was living with a FBI informant. So this is happening like over and over and over again, right? So wow, this is the stuff that we're not being told. And you know, the Saudis, how they got into the country. I mean, yeah, I'm so happy that you said that because it's you're a thousand percent right when not being told the truth. And that's where I think things get shadowy, because if you say if you question any official federal narrative, they throw the term conspiracy theory at you. Yeah. And sometimes there is a conspiracy. It's not a theory. Like you have a set of facts and those set of facts point to a conclusion. Yeah. And that's not a theory. That's a conclusion. And there are conspiracy conclusions. What we know, absolutely. And I'm with you. I don't think George Bush brought down the towers. I don't think there were explosives inside the building. What I do think is that we had a lot of information about the Saudis. I think that the Saudi government was involved. And I think that for some reason, our own government, Trump too, because he was just as bad as Obama and just as bad as Bush and just as bad as Biden now, for some reason, they will not release what they had on the Saudis who plowed those Deadly weapons, human filled, deadly weapons into two civilian filled buildings, murdering 3000 Americans. And that to me is inexplicable. And I feel like people should rise up, but nobody cares about anything anymore.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And one thing, it was like, what, 443 firemen, if I'm not mistaken, passed away. 343, 343, 343. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was a, a high number. Um, just
0: and, and the guys who've died since of the 9/11. Disease. Yeah, the, the but guys that, the that come down there denied. to clean up.
1: Yeah, right. It's 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 a horrible tragedy. And I remember that day so well. Like I had just gotten, I was out of high school. I was going to a technical college, but I was also DJing um, some during the week. At this, it was a it was a hotel, but it had a, like a club inside the hotel. And I was DJing that night, and I'm like, I'm half a little hungover, half sleeping. And I remember my sister called me and she's like, you need to turn on the TV. And it's, you know, fairly early. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you need to look at the TV. We're being bombed. And when I was kind of like, what? And I looked and I seen that the tower was on fire. The first tower had already been hit. Well, no sooner as I'm trying to like figure out what's going on, the second one got hit. And then I'm starting to figure it out, and I'm just like, holy cow. I mean, I was just glued like I'm sure America was that day to the TV wondering what's going on. Then you get the Pentagon get hit. Then, you know, the crash down in Shanksville. Now, the Pentagon to me is probably the only one that I would say seems a little weird because, like, I find it hard to believe that a a building that secure, like the Pentagon, would not have any footage of you seeing a plane going into that building like you did on the towers. I mean, there's like a split second clip. That's only like a two second frame. You see something and an explosion. I find it really hard to believe that there's no other footage of a plane hitting that Pentagon.
0: I completely agree. I mean, just even the airspace around it. Yeah, the, the they
1: like it you is. said, yeah, the airspace around it. And I've heard now, granted, I'm not saying this is true. This is all stuff that I've heard that officials went and like grabbed security footage from gas stations from the surrounding areas. But the maneuver that that particular pilot, and I want to say his name was Hani Hanjour, but I'm not sure um, that there was the, the one behind the wheel or the cockpit, so to speak, of that plane the maneuver that he would have had to make to get down as fast as he was going then basically ride ground level and run into that Pentagon. I think they said they'd done like a test run and let some experienced pilots try to do it. And only like two out of 10 done it. And this was a guy that had little to no experience flying. So the chances of him being able to pull off that a maneuver were, were next to nothing. Yeah.
0: I mean, I didn't pay that close attention to the Pentagon because I was spending so much time at ground zero. Right. and, I mean, look. And, but why don't people ask these questions? Yeah, because that's a that's a valid, that's a valid questioning. We're not saying that it was a government conspiracy and they blew up the towers. We're saying, hold on a minute, can can you explain why we don't have footage? Yeah, why don't we have satellite images? Can you explain that? But we yeah. don't even ask the questions. We just let them. We, it's no different than letting state-run media tell us what's up. Exactly. Because if we don't question these narratives, they just become cemented in our minds. Absolutely, and, and nobody is ever held accountable for anything.
1: Now, what about what well, you were in New York? What about Building Seven? Because that's something that's. It's overlooked, but at the same time, it's very odd because it's not hit by the plane. And then there's that interview with the guy. I'm not sure his name, but he said that we made it on a Silverstein or something like that. He made, we made the decision to pull it. That was what he said. Now, pull it is a term that's sometimes used in doing demolition work um, and bring down a building. So like, how did that one get that damage to where it collapsed too? That one's always been a little odd.
0: I was there, and I remember it coming down. And it's it's pretty far away. It wasn't like right in that cluster, right? Right. So we don't. We, nobody knew what the hell was going on when that building came down, too. I, again, this is what I mean. Can can we just get some explanations? What did you mean by pulling? Yeah, I'm sure there could be a plausible explanation. Yeah. but just share it with us. Yeah, <laughs> share it with us. I mean, this goes right down to what really started my marathon bombing investigation. We're expected to believe that the FBI had an open case against Tamalins and I, the older brother, the older Mm -hmm. bomber brother. They went to his house multiple times. Now, you're interviewing me right now. I recognize your face. If you blow up the marathon in a year, I'm going to say, Jesus, that looks a lot like that. (laughs) Awesome guy from the podcast, right?
1: I'm going to shave my beard now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, this guy, I mean, you were expected to believe that they had an open case, the, the most elite unit of the FBI, the counterterrorism unit. Their agents had an open case. They interviewed this guy and they didn't recognize him when we got their picture of suspect blackout.
2: Yeah.
0: How do you possibly buy that? You I've been can. a reporter for a long time. And even though I interview a lot of people, I would not remember your face if you blew up the marathon.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. That's going to be something that's going to stick in your mind. For sure.
0: Right, like, well, that looks like that dude from Cambridge.
1: <laughs> uh, Boston in itself too, has just got so much other stuff that goes down. And one thing that's always baffled me about that was that art heist down there that nobody's ever figured out. Like, did you, did you cover anything on that or like look into that as far as like maybe writing something on that?
0: Uh, you know, that's, that story has been written so much and it's such a great story. Yeah. And there's so many different tales. I mean, look at, I, I have not investigated this myself, But what I will say is that I've talked to some of the mobsters who have been on the peripheral of this case. You remember they were digging up the backyard of a mobster, looking for the paintings. Uh, They were talking about a guy who, speaking of Mark Rossetti, that informant I was mentioning earlier, he had a crew. And one of the guys in his crew was Bobby Donati. And that guy was suspected of stealing the paintings. And the story goes from the wise guy part of the story, Bobby Donati was beaten to give up the location of the paintings, but these idiots accidentally killed them. They beat him to death. So they, so no one knows where the paintings are because he was the guy who hit it. But you have to remember the politics. Like I look at the bigger picture and I'm not saying I have any evidence that this is true, but this was one of the theories that was swirling around law enforcement at the time. You know, the landscape of Boston at that time was the IRA got most of its money from Boston. Mm -hmm. Like all The, you know, the war test of the IRA came largely from Boston. And I know that the Valhalla, if you look into the Valhalla, which is a great story for you to cover, Mm -hmm. the Valhalla was a fishing vessel out of Gloucester, Massachusetts that was filled with weapons on its way to Ireland. And Whitey ratted everybody out. We didn't know that until decades later, but Whitey ratted everybody out and they got the guns. But I always wondered if the FBI had anything to do with the robbery, because if you look back in time, the IRA used art to move a lot of its money. Yeah. Like they were very adept at using art to launder its money, to get money. So I always wondered if it was a deal just to keep the piece, like, you know, here's this priceless piece of art. It
1: it could be.
0: It could be, right? Like you look into it. Listen, I look at the FBI and everything because – you know, many, many, many uh, U.S. attorneys, you know, federal prosecutors have said, Michelle, you just, the one mistake you can't, you often make is you underestimate the incompetence of the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: that's, that's funny. I mean, the stealing the art, though, that's like that one thing to where it's like, okay, you stolen it. But what can you do with it? Like, if you rob a bank, you can launder the money and open up legitimate businesses. And, you know, if you sell drugs, obviously you take the proceeds. You can do different stuff with that. But, like, the art, like, what do you, it's going to be hard to sell that to somebody unless it's somebody that's completely out of the country that just wants it. I mean, it's not like your average guy can just go put that in their house, in their dining room, and it not be, you know, recognized as this valuable piece of art that they had there. I mean, that, the whole, robbery itself was just strange. Cause it's like, how do you move all that? And I'm not very versed in like the underworld and, and how they would move stuff like that. But to me, it was just real odd, but, but obviously very well executed and, and I guess done properly because nobody's ever you know been incarcerated for it.
0: Yeah. But if you look through the reports, right. Some of the actions of the FBI,
1: you know, investigating
0: this were well, questionable. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm not making that declaration. It's been, Right. Contained in documentaries and in reporting, which makes you just wonder. You know, it'd be very easy to when you're talking about weapons, yeah. trying to get weapons, it could be anywhere. You yeah. could have you, you could have given a painting to the Saudis to get a boatload of weapons.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That well, makes who knows?
0: It, yeah. I mean who makes knows? perfect
1: sense. Um now we talked earlier about you being an author. You've got several books up under your belt. Obviously, we mentioned some. Well, the Boston bombing, but you got one in particular. I want to talk about mob of Miami about Chris Pacello. is not that how you say his name. Pacello. Uh,
0: Pacello. Really this is mother's maiden name. Yeah. But yes, yeah, Chris Pacello, which I mean, honestly, if you want to, if you want to feel, this is what I do when I want to feel bad, like how the hell am I still broke? And I look at Chris Pacello, convicted murderer, convict mob rat, ran out everybody. And if you look at his Instagram page, He is living the beautiful life. He is. (laughs) Right? Like, he's living the beautiful life. He's got a stunningly beautiful girlfriend. He's, you know, living in a mansion in Miami. He's got a house on South Beach. He runs a nightclub again. I mean, that, I have to laugh. I'm like, where did I go wrong? Crime does indeed pay if you look at the Chris Batchello story.
1: No, absolutely. And like you said, I follow him on Instagram, too. I mean, that dude is not is not going through hard times. I can, I can say that for (laughs) sure. (laughs) I'm over here trying to rub (laughs) these two quarters together. And this guy is just living life, man. Uh, yeah, like you said, back in the club business, but for people that don't know, you know, before he came and opened up and became like the club King there in Miami, he was involved with a crew of guys out of New York. They were called the bath Avenue crew with, we spoke, uh, privately about Jimmy Calandra and a few other guys. And to the, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. You obviously know a little bit more than me, but basically it was a botched robbery and a woman wound up getting killed. And was Chris, the driver.
0: He was the getaway driver. He was the architect of the scheme. They were, so this guy, um, Shemtob, his wife was Judy mm-hmm. and he, apparently there were, rumor was that he worked in the diamond industry and he had a safe full of, you know, money and diamonds. And so they went to do a home invasion And something went wrong the minute Judy Shemtov answered the door. I think Tommy Reynolds Mm -hmm. was the gunman. Tommy Reynolds, um, did he shoot accidentally? Did the gun go off by mistake? Who knows? But that woman died in her daughter's Mm -hmm. arms in the doorway of that home, which is why the people who herald Chris Paciello as such a, you know, a megastar. I mean, look, I know he wasn't the shooter, but you know, this was all his idea. So Mm -hmm. that woman's blood is undoubtedly on his hands, which obviously the federal government agreed with that assessment because they charged him with murder.
1: Mm -hmm. Now that came a a while later, because I think right after that, he left, went to Miami and opened up this club that just became this unbelievable hotspot. Um, you know, Madonna would go there. Sophia Vergara would go there. I mean, the big stars would go there A party. Well, they, they weren't just going there. They were sleeping with Chris well, well, Yeah. So. Yeah. Bet, with him too. Yeah. because you. <laughs> they were going going everywhere. <laughs> yeah. They were going, they were going home with him and everything else. But I, <laughs> I watched, uh, I can't remember if it was a documentary or whatever. There was this guy that I know he worked there and he just used to say like, Chris was like the nicest guy that, you know, everybody loved him that was around there. They would have never thought this would happen. It was a complete shock when the, the chickens come home to roost, so to speak, when he got arrested. Now, how long was it that he was in Miami before he got arrested for this?
0: Uh, he'd been there for a while. Cause remember, you know, his claim to fame is when he was younger, he dated Karen Gravano, the daughter of Sammy, the bull Gravano. Mm-hmm. And that kind of put him in the periphery of these, they call them Malandrini, the wannabe wise guys. Right. Like, so that's how he met Jimmy Calandra and Tommy Reynolds and Joey Calco. And it's interesting because Jimmy Calandra obviously went into witness protection for a while as you know, because you had him on the show. Joey Calco, he was what they call a zip. Mm-hmm. The mob brings in the zips as Sicilian killers. So he was straight off the boat from Italy. And Joey Calco ended up cooperating. And they gave him a restaurant in Florida. And you know how he got caught? I got a recall from a reporter in Florida who said, "Uh, did you write a, you wrote a bunch of stories about a guy, Joey Calco, he's in your book. I go, yeah, he goes, Geez, he got caught. His whole WITSEC life got ripped apart because someone complained about a calzone that was cold. So he grabbed the pistol from under the counter of the restaurant that we, you and I, again, Yeah, pay for. (laughs) Now, we pay for, because it's a (laughs) taxpayer-funded operation run by a zip, which is a killer. (laughs) (laughs) And the zip beats a guy for complaining about the cold calzone. And obviously he gets arrested and his entire existence in the witness protection program was unraveled in that one stance. But these guys formed this little crew in Brooklyn and their claim to fame. And I, I believe it was Chris's idea. Chris Patriello in Brooklyn had a different persona. He was known as the binger because mm-hmm. he liked to binge on crime. So, you know, the binger came up with this idea that was kind of genius where they would steal a bulldozer off a construction site and plow it into an ATM mm-hmm. and then just take all the money and they were doing like, you know, two ATMs a week and they were rolling in it. So now they get the attention of real wise guys, the bosses, because they're earning. So they're earning enough money that Chris Paciello, you know, Chris Paciello was probably the most articulate and put together out of this bunch. So it made sense that when, You know, the the history of the club is interesting because John Gotti allegedly gave the club to Mickey Rourke to say thank you for Mickey Rourke supporting him during his trial. Wow. But Mickey Rourke did not want to run a club or he didn't know how to run a club or he was too busy partying to run a club. So the club was losing money. So they needed a guy that could go down there and actually use this club. What its intention was, which was to launder the mob's money. Mm -hmm. But when you're not making any money, you can't launder the money that's coming into it, right? (laughs) So so they needed someone who was a little more adept at you know drawing a crowd. And I don't think anyone expected Chris Paciela to become the king of South Beach. And and you're right. When I was writing a book about him, I was at the China Grill, I'm by myself, I'm you know, writing in my laptop, and I got asked to leave. I got kicked out of the China Grill because. Mr. Paciello is a friend of ours And we don't appreciate You writing about Mr. Paciello Now it's, the Chinese Grill is a restaurant chain It's not like some wise guy's Hotspot, right? Yeah. It's a restaurant chain <laughs> And the manager asked me to leave Because I was being mean to Chris Paciello
1: it's, it's crazy how People in certain areas John Gotti was like that He was loved in New York Um, You, you can even go into Columbus Pablo Escobar was loved by his people um, when they do certain things in the neighborhood, sometimes it doesn't matter what they may have done outside of that or in their past life or former life. You know, they're, you, you can't shake that love that they have for people. And Chris was, was one of those guys in Miami.
0: Well, you know, who didn't love him back in Brooklyn, his ex-girlfriends. Yeah. <laughs> because before he started dating Madonna and Nikki Taylor and Sophia Vergara, he was dating people like Love Majewski, who if anyone watched The Mob Wives, every one of those women are from my book. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them. So, what Chris's claim to fame was back in Brooklyn. Now, I've been on a lot of bad dates, a lot of bad dates. But I kind of draw the line of being out to dinner with a dude and then he sends the Bath Avenue crew to a house to rob it. And, <laughs> and that's what Chris used to do. He would take a girl out to dinner and then the crew would be like, at her house, robbing it. <laughs>
1: I mean, that's kind of smart, but you're not going to get a second date out of that. I don't think you, well, I guess I you mean, don't the, want one.
0: No, I bet. I bet you he gets laid too, because think about it. Now it's the night in shining Harbor. Oh yeah. no. Let me don't go in there. here and
1: investigate see what's going on. Make sure nobody's I in better here. spend the night.
0: Make sure they don't come back.
1: So you get, you robbed to join and you get laid all in the same time. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh, uh, so that, Noah, that's hilarious. He
0: wasn't a dumb criminal. No, I mean, he,
1: listen, you know, by all accounts, he's a smart guy. I can, you can't knock that from, you can't take that from him. What listen, he done.
0: He, he, he's running legitimate businesses. Like <laughs> I couldn't run a business. I don't have the acumen to, right. to keep a book or, or make an order, a food order. He's, well, he's you know well. what they
1: say about a lot of these mob guys, especially the hiring guys like Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, guys like that, that they had brilliant business minds. And if they would have put their minds to work in legitimate businesses, they would have ran, you know, companies, Fortune 500 companies. Um, they just chose to do it, you know, with the mob backing. In most cases, those were illegal. But the mind, the, the workings of the mind were always very brilliant. And I think he's a he's a testament to that. I mean, like you said, he's the clubs and stuff like that. I think he's got a gym, uh some other stuff. I mean, like you said, it anytime I just feel bad about myself, I just go on his Instagram and just start scrolling and it's like, well at least this dude's living good.
0: <laughs> I know, yeah, it makes me feel worse. I'm like, how am I still broke? How is this possible? Well yeah, and
1: you know the one thing that I always I always found curious is I'm not sure of the relationship between him and Jimmy, but like why he's he's basically erased that from his past, so to speak. Like he doesn't you know, he never offered Jimmy a job or anything like that. I always kind of found that a little curious Is he just kind of cut ties with New York altogether and erase that from his history. Or uh, I don't know. Well, what do you think?
0: What, what I know, I never talked to Jimmy Calandra, you know, uh, he just rejudged me recently. Cause he, you know, to see if there's something in the Bath Avenue crew, but I did talk to Tommy Reynolds in jail, which, got me listed as a mafia associate just interviewing him in jail, which is so stupid, right? (laughs) So stupid. But they can give me a hard time every time I go to a a federal prison now because of this category, right? Wow. But Tommy Reynolds told me he only had one regret. Obviously, he didn't mean to kill that woman. But he said that because I, I believe Tommy's story was Chris said no one was home. Yeah. And then the woman comes to the door. Yeah, And so Tommy said they were driving over the Verrazano bridge and right before he checks the gun, and there's a lot of guns in the water under the Verrazano bridge, right before he checks the gun, he puts it to Chris Pacello's head. And he's like, you know, obviously the words exchanged. Somebody in the backseat grabbed him and said, don't do it. And he threw the gun into the water. And when I interviewed him in prison, he said, my one regret is I didn't pull the trigger when I had that gun pressed to Chris Pacello's head. So I guess if Chris Pacello is not afraid of Ali Boy Persico, who we put away, he put away some some real wise guys. Like Ali yeah. Boy Persico was son of the Columba bus, Carmine the yeah, Snake.
1: Carmine the Snake, yeah.
0: Yeah, so he put away. So if he's not afraid of, I think, look, if he's making people money, then he's going to be safe from the mafia in New York. Yeah. But it's the thugs. It's like the the Dreaming the ones who didn't make it that I'd be nervous about if I were him. Yeah. I'm not worried about alley boy Persico setting some well-heeled hitman. I'm worried about some angry guy who did time and first didn't.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that hundred percent. And he, he, I know he did get arrested. I don't think he spent a whole lot of time inside. Was it was like less than a year, around a year or something like that.
0: He got sentenced to six. So I don't think he's served much of that at all. Yeah, no, it wasn't um, a lot. But, but remember he decided what he did is it was interesting because he really burned everybody. What they wanted to do initially is sever. So, you know, this, you can sever yeah. your case. Like you and I get locked up. I want to be severed. Yeah. Right. So you
1: don't try them so, together. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So they all agreed together to be tried as the Bath Avenue crew to be en masse. Cause it's harder to get a convention. If you, some defense attorneys believe, because you can confuse the jury who's responsible for what. Yeah. Well, Chris, So then they get confused and, on the eve of that trial, Chris decided to join team America. So he re- not only did he rat out everybody, but he d- gave them no shot at a trial that was going to be successful. Yeah. In the way that he did it on the eve of trial. So the fact that people are mad at him, but again, you know, this is the guy who has, he is on the right side of the velvet rope. You know, yeah. he can make or break you in Miami. And even if you are a well-known wise guy, you still want to eat. Yeah. You still want to hang out at the Delano and be cool. Right. Yeah.
2: So,
0: <laughs> in order to do that, you need a guy like Chris Paciello. Oh.
2: He's,
0: he's, he's an interesting, you know, it's interesting because this, this one could be, uh, and talking to a bunch of people about maybe this being a series.
1: No, it needs to be a series or d- definitely a movie. Now there was a movie a while back years ago that I think was supposedly loosely based on this. It was called Kings of South beach. Um, oh, had, I
0: remember it well. Yeah. I Jason Gedrick,
1: well. I think was in there and one of the Wahlbergs, not Mark, but the, the uh, Donnie, I think it was in there. It was
0: in it. A friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. who's an excellent actor, Brian Goodman. Goody called me and said, McPhee, I'm in your movie. I'm like, what movie? And there's a whole story about this NYPD cop that I knew for years. Sonny Grasso, Sonny Grasso, of course, went into movies. He was taking me out to dinner at rails at his private table and he never once meant he was grilling me for information. And this is what you learn. So everything that you're doing right now, you should make sure that you protect. Yeah. You know, with an agent, register your ideas. Because Sonny Grasso, for a plate of pasta, pretty much got me to tell him the whole story of my book for free. And <laughs> he never optioned it. And then he made the movie Kings of Selfies. So needless to say, I hate that movie.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it It was a, a poor attempt at the story, too, I think. It could have been a lot better uh, executed. I actually really like Jason Gedrick as an actor. You do. I love him. I mean, when I grew up, there was a movie he was in called The Heavenly Kid uh, that was like one of my favorites growing up, where they were at the beginning, they're like racing towards this cliff and it's like a version of chicken. And the one guy goes off the cliff. Well, he comes back to life and he's got to like look after this nerdy kid. That nerdy kid is Jason Gedrick. Well, at the end, he, he finds out that ultimately he's the kid's father. And at the uh. end, yeah, at the end, Jason Gedrick is doing, like, the same type of race. And you think, he's, you think he dies, but then, you know, the, that was the, the test to see if he could get into heaven was he gave up his soul to save his son. So it's, it's kind of, it's a comedy, but, I mean, that was what I always remembered him from, and then he done, like, the the last Don series and you know, a, a multitude of other things. I think he was in the Bosch series as well. The first season of that. Yeah. So a fantastic actor, but I remember watching that movie and then hearing that that was supposed to be loosely based on that. And even then I'm thinking, well, that could have been a lot better at least follow If you didn't know that it was supposed to be based on that, it was a good movie or a decent movie, but definitely not related to that story. It could have been a whole lot better. So I hope you can get the ball rolling on a, a accurate TV show. <laughs>
0: Yeah, me too. I, I mean, it's such a great story. And then, for me, there's two questions. First of all, how did a guy like Chris Pratchett, who's a convicted murderer, get a liquor license? Yeah,
1: because so, you're not supposed to be able to do that.
0: <laughs> well, pretty much. But I wonder if, you know, he never gave up his relationship with Team USA. And what better way to get information on sports stars and celebrities and all of the cartel leaders and various associates that mob guys that run through his place the whole place is probably filled with lights and cameras oh yeah They're probably bugging everything in there with his permission
1: no that makes perfect uh, sense
0: well I, I, if i was running a case in south beach i would bug the hell out of chris Patchello's place and what choice does he really have
1: no, yeah. You're you, you might have just made his business go down a little bit in his bar. <laughs> said, Why is business slow? I don't know what happened. <laughs> no I mean, That makes perfect like, sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh now you at one time weren't you working on something with uh Gotti Jr. as well, a project with him?
0: Yes, I was. I don't you know, it's funny. I just went to Phoenix to meet with Sammy the Bull. Okay. I yeah, and um it was interesting because to to talk to Junior, to talk to Sammy the Bull, Junior is a guy who's out of the life. He wants nothing to do with the mob. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, his story is he hasn't been in the mob in decades since his dad died. And, you know, I, I mean, I believe him. He seems to very much to be a family guy. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sammy the Bull is still very much, you know, a swaggering gangster uh, telling old mob stories and Yeah, it's a very long story, but in the end, I was like, I don't know if
1: I can do this. Well, I'll have to give Sammy one thing: for him to have been in jail as long as he did, I I think between the first, the whole deal with Gotti, and then later when he got busted with the ecstasy, which is another story altogether, when he was down there in Arizona and the witness protection, he can tell a story. There's some people that just have a gift at telling a story. Um, There's just some people that can can put you in that place you it's like you're there when they're telling it um not everybody has that gift sammy has that gift um and the thing about it is you know because he was convicted or not convicted but when he was on trial it was known that he killed a high high number of people so you know these stories yeah. are accurate and genuine it's not because some people like well that guy didn't do this or that guy didn't do that it was openly known that he did kill a lot of people so you know that probably a lot of what he's saying is true. So that makes it all the even more believable and all the better to hear.
0: Well, listen, he told me a story and it was very compelling and moving. And he even teared up telling it when I was in Arizona uh, about the murder of a high ranking boss from the Philadelphia mob, Johnny keys. And he, I think that in a, when he, as he told me the story, I think he was waning. He was nostalgic. Because he killed his one of his very first big... It was the Mafia Commission hit. So it was mm-hmm. a very big piece of business. And frankly, the way he describes how he lured this guy to his death... I mean, obviously, Sammy the Bull had some brains, too.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
0: it took a lot of planning and a lot of doing and a lot of balls. And he talks about how when this guy, Johnny Keys, was in the back of this van where they were driving him to his death in Staten Island, you know he had so much respect for this man of honor and how Johnny keys had one request. Can you please Sammy, do me a favor and take off my shoes. And Sammy's like, why? And he said, because I always told my wife that I would die in bed with my shoes off. So it'd be my last kiss goodbye to her. And I think that, I think that Sammy told me that story and he's told it with great emotion because he saw Johnny keys as the man that he wished he went out as instead of the guy right now. Yeah. you know, who's in Arizona, you know, nobody takes him seriously as a mobster anymore because of, you know, his past, um, you, you know, he insists that he never gave up anybody of imports, but that's what everybody says. I'm sure Bobby Luisi said that to you. Jimmy mm-hmm. Fondra said that to you. So, you know, but I think there was some genuine emotion. So you are right. The guy is a storyteller and I think that the story was true. And I think he genuinely you know, he killed his own brother-in-law and I don't think he felt anything. But I think here he had true, genuine empathy because Johnny Keys represented what he thought the mafia should be.
1: Yeah. Now we had Larry miles on the show recently. He was in the Columbo's a uh, lot like when the Colombo war was going on with Greg Scarpa. And you know, the whole deal where he was actually uh, working along with the speaking, FBI, uh,
0: speaking of FBI murderous informants, yeah. taking a free pass to kill people all over Brooklyn. Yeah.
1: Big the one. The grim and, reaper. The grim yeah. reaper. Exactly. And when he got the AIDS, I think that made it even worse because he knew he was dying so it was just like he really didn't the, the give a shit before was non existent, but after he found out he had AIDS, it was really out the window. And Did,
0: did Larry tell you how he got AIDS?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Isn't from that the, the best story in the world? Because
1: it's it's because karma he did for want sure. To
0: get, he did not want to take blood from a black guy. He didn't yeah. want to take the risk. So he got one of his crew members, and then the crew member was a junkie who gave him AIDS. That's well, how we got. Well, Larry
1: told me that the guy that get, he got the, the blood from, I forgot his, his real name, but his, his nickname was pumps because he was a big <laughs> muscle. Uh, like he was a workout guy, workout buff, you know, working out. And he got the steroids by sharing needles back in those days. That's oh, how he contracted. Well, that
0: makes
2: sense.
1: Yeah. And I, I, Benny pumps or something like that. But, uh, that's how we wound up getting it. You know, they, they had the blood there at the hospital and he was like, you know, I don't want that. I want some on crew. And the one guy that matched him was the guy that, you know, had been sharing the needles. And ultimately that's how, you know, he got the virus. Um,
0: oh, I did not know that. That's a new story about pumps.
1: Yeah. Uh, now, Larry, when he uh, cooperated, he took down a lot of dirty cops that was on the payroll doing a lot there. And in turn, in, in a weird way, it really kind of helped some be, some guys beat their case. Um, so he, he turned on the cops. He got his deal, but it, it helped a lot of guys kind of either beat their case or or shorten their sentences. So there is a such thing as turning rat and saving face, because that's one thing that he and I talked about. Is for somebody to say, "Oh, well, this person ratted, or this person ratted." It's hard to know what you would do until you're in that situation, because right. it's one thing that I've found when talking to a lot of these mob guys is when they join this life, they're promised this this whole bunch of stuff. Oh, we're gonna take care of you if you go away. We'll take care of your family. You'll get money. Your family will have to worry. And then the second you go to jail none of that happens. He said he went Correct. into jail. He had a bookmaking business. that was bringing in 3000 a week. Yeah, that was to him and his partner. And then that dwindled to, you know, 2000, then 1000 then 500 and then one of the last times they give him like $150. And he's like, yeah. so everything that he, that you're supposed to, that's supposed to make you be quiet in jail. You know, if you're getting $3,000 a week, your family's taken care of, you got to do four years, five years, you do it because your family's taken care of. But when that's not happening and they're basically told you got to go get on welfare, or whatever, to take care of yourself, that's what leads a lot of these guys to flip. So it's the it's them not holding up their end of the deal, I think, that leads to a lot of these guys flipping from what I'm from what I'm getting from people.
0: Yeah, I completely can see that, honestly. So it is a very nuanced issue. And, you know, a lot of times they do it to save their own lives. Mm-hmm. I think that Sammy the Bull would argue that the FBI played him tapes where John Gotti was saying that he was going to whack him. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows what people's motives are? It's, but I think we can all agree it's 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 a tough life unless you're Chris Batchello.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's about the only <laughs> one that I can say is just doing. I mean, and he didn't do any jail. I can say Joey Merlino, too, but Joey spent a good deal of time in jail. So Chris is Did just Joey cooperate. No, he didn't cooperate. He's done some times uh, in like jail. I'm
0: skinny, yeah, no. skinny Joe Molino. I didn't see as a
1: cooperative. No, no, hell no. I don't think he would he would never cooperate. But he's done he's he's held the reins for a long time. He definitely has well, a, a good why, life.
0: Well, when Bobby Luisi tapped me on the shoulder at Target and in, in Rivera, Massachusetts, I was a little surprised to see him right? <laughs> because he bad out Joey skinny Joe Molino. So yeah. that is that guy's no joke. Yeah. He's still kind of a savage. He's not oh, like yeah. These guys that are out to pasture and retiring. Yeah. My favorite thing about the witness protection program right now is that all these guys are living in Arizona, hanging out with each other. It's like my blue heaven out there.
1: Yeah. Now I don't know if it's true, but people always said that that my blue heaven was kind of loosely based on Henry Hill after he got into the witness protection, or all these guys kind of wind, <laughs> all, all those kind of wind up in the same place, and they basically just start setting up shop and and doing the same stuff out there.
0: <laughs> yeah, because that's Scottsdale, Arizona.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, Bobby, I think, was in Tennessee, but uh, <laughs> that would have still well, been you mean, odd.
0: You mean the Reverend Alphonse y- Yeah, Esposito. the Reverend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's that's still the funniest story to me, to see Bobby Luisi, who I know well from my childhood. The idea of him preaching to people. And I think, you know, from what he says, I mean, look at the guy made amends to me. He said he was sorry that I had a gun pointed to my head. I mean, what are you going to say when someone says the, "you're sorry"? It, it takes all the wind out of your sails. Yeah. All right.
1: And, and I mean, he said that he had what he would consider like a a spiritual awake. I don't know if his awakening was a specific word to use, but a, a a spiritual event maybe that that changed him. And you know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Um, yeah. you know, that's up for him and you know whoever he he prays to, to to take that up. I know Michael Francis is another one that's uh you know had a lot to do with preaching and, and changing his life around, and he's doing a lot of stuff on YouTube as well. So you know. Maybe there's something to it. These guys, just because you lead that life and you're in it for a long time, you can change things around. That's not to say that anybody can't. I know sometimes it might be harder to believe than others, depending on how vicious they were in their life before, but it's always an option to turn things around.
0: I agree. And I think that some people can do it. And, you know, obviously spirituality has a big part of it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, look, the guy, he looked very sincere there there is there's, people always ask me, how do you know if someone really is a murderer? And and the answer is always the same. There's a deadness to their eyes. Yeah. There's literally no gleam, no shine. Like there's no soul left in that person's body. And so I could always tell. Yeah. And I know that sounds so corny and, te- and silly, but it's absolutely true. I've interviewed many, many killers and they all have the same deadness to their eyes. And Bobby Luisi didn't have that deadness. I don't think he was a killer anyways. He was just a drug dealer. Yeah. you know, and he wasn't somebody who had their soul ripped out because they were forced to kill family members and friends. And
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I know one of the, uh, I think he got into it a little bit on my show, but another podcast I'd heard, they asked him if he had any regrets and his regrets was, you know, the drugs that he helped deal, you know, got did wind up actually, you know, causing some people to lose their life at an early age. So that was one thing that he regretted and i thought that was you know admirable of him to say uh, at least he did regret that um you know as we said earlier you've you've done a lot of books but you started working with city on the hill with tom fontana how did you get involved with that
0: i got very lucky tom fontana is such a legend yes you know he i, I mean just every show that I was obsessed with that made me want to be a crime writer in the first place was created by Tom Fontana, you know, starting with Oz, oh. which was the first big drama, right? Like I love them.
1: I love it. I, like every once every year, I usually go back and Sopranos and Oz I'll watch at least once a year. I'll just go back and burn through them. I mean, just so good. The first really good show on HBO like that, it set the groundwork for everything to come after. And a lot of those guys that were in there are still, you know, in the business today. It launched a lot of their careers. Half of them are selling insurance. <laughs> I mean, right,
0: like the insurance yeah. yeah. J.K. Simmons
1: help. is, uh, what well, he's all, was all state or farmer. J.K. Simmons is farmers. Oh. Um, uh, uh, Ryan O'Reilly, I forgot it. Dean Winters. He's the mayhem man. Winners. I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy, but that show was just so damn good. Way ahead of its time, I think, but way, way just, just blown away by how the acting was in there.
0: Yeah, I know. He, you know, look at Tom Fontana created the genre that I love, you know, yeah. he then David Simon, you know, he, um, he worked with David Simon on homicide, mm-hmm. which gave me hope that like a, you know, a recovering crime reporter could actually make it in Hollywood. <laughs> and, you know, David Simon and Tom Fontana are two people who have really taken the genre to new levels. Absolutely. So how did I get involved? I just got lucky. I was, I felt blessed. A good friend of mine, Chuck McLean created the show. Um, you know, the idea came from Chuck and Ben Affleck and it, you know, it takes forever to get these shows off the ground. I now am learning the hard way here in LA uh, and Chuck was looking, they needed a female writer and, you know, my dear friend, Jimmy Cummings said to Chuck, what about McPhee? McPhee knows crime better than anybody. And I had a meeting with Tom Fontaine. I remember I left there crying, like joy, joyful tears because, Tom Fontana talked about how he got a lucky break from uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's dad, you know, Bruce Paltrow. Right. And uh, he got a job at St. Elsewhere, even though he had never been on a television series. And he said that he made a promise that he would pass it on to someone from outside of the industry because, you know, it's the industry and it's very insular. He would give a chance to somebody outside the industry. And that was my year. And it was such a, you know, decades later, he's still passing that on. And he truly believes in that. And it was the best experience of my life. I love City on a Hill. I made, you know, lifelong friendships. Jonathan Tucker and I are like best friends to this day. Uh, Tucker and I are working on a couple of, I wrote a feature that you guys will hear about soon for Jonathan Tucker, the star Jonathan Tucker. So that's out there in the ether right now and we had a sh- we sold a show to apple that we're now trying to uh reinvent so you know that show gave me so many opportunities and i've learned so much and i just was very very lucky to have had that shot mm-hmm. and to have that script that tom was very generous to give me you know a credit on uh so, so that's kind of what launched you because you need a credit to get an agent and then you yeah. need an agent to get a manager and it goes on and on and on and, there's a lot of steps and Tom Fontana helped me skip like what 20 year olds are doing right now. Right
1: no, that's, uh, that's great that he does that. And I love those types of stories when people get a break and they get into the business, they, they do their thing, they're noticed and their body of work speaks for itself. And then they pass that along to someone else. That's, uh, that I love those types of stories. And I mean, it's kind of like, you know, hopefully one day I'll get that chance because I come in and, and you and I talked about this. I come into this podcast game. I knew nothing. I didn't know. I didn't know nothing about a podcast. I didn't know what kind of mic to get. I didn't know what kind of laptop to get. I had never uploaded anything to YouTube in my life. My editing skills were zero. Um, and then I just I learned it all. And I just, I made a few contacts and some people would help me out with some information. And by and large, I just kind of learned how to do everything as I went along. And then I actually got asked the other day, cause I mean, my schedule swamped. A lot of times I have one, sometimes two interviews a day. And this kid who is making a, um, he's trying to do a podcast himself. He was like, Hey, would you mind coming on my show? And like my first thought was like tell him, man, I'm real busy right now. I'm going to have to, you know, we're going to have to schedule out, you know, maybe a month or two. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And then on this show, I'm sh- he wants to talk about how I started it. And I was like, you know, maybe this will help this kid, you know, kind of learn some things and fit into it. Because I was like, people gave me the opportunities because I was new. And I can see why everybody don't want to just hop on a podcast, especially if it's new. Because you don't know how serious people are going to take it. You know, they could just be like, after a month, they'd be like, oh man, this is more work than I thought it is. The hell with this. And essentially you wasted your time, you know, so I had to build it up to get it to where it is. And now I think I counted up today with stuff that I already have in the can. I've got like 25 interviews already done in the can.
0: I I mean, listen, I told you before in a private conversation, I think that this is a great basis of a series. It's such a good concept. Yeah. You know? And, and so look, if when I'm in a position to pass it on, I would absolutely you know, I'd hook you up the way that people have hooked me up. Right. Absolutely, yeah, It's all about relationships. It's a business of relationships.
1: Absolutely. And that's why I'm, I'm making contacts and, and you know, I, I wish other people, like I said, even if it doesn't trickle down to me, I wish people that I have interviewed success. If for nothing else, I can say, Hey, I interviewed her or him and look what they're doing now. You know, they came into me and they were gracious enough to come on my show. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on our show. Now, before we get out of here, you have a podcast as well. Do you want to tell the folks where they can go to catch your podcast?
0: Sure. It's um it's Mayhem with Michelle McBee. It's on all the podcast platforms like us. And uh you know, it's it's a pretty I think in some ways it's better than the book, which I hate to say, but it's because you can hear the voice right. it's, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing is a very complicated story to try to explain, but hopefully we break it down in a way but better yet. So before someone can throw out, well, it's a conspiracy. Every single thing that I talk about is on our website, which is mayhempod.com. So you can find it there for the most part. All right, cool. And I'm excited for you. Congratulations. Honestly, I think you have a great concept here. I love the guests and I love the idea. This is, you know... The real crime Hollywood
1: is fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. That means a lot coming from you. We're going to put some links to some of your books in the show notes as well. If people want to go pick that up, we didn't really scratch even the surface of some of the books that she has, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of good true crime books in there. We only hit on a few, so go check them out. She even touched a little bit with the Aaron Hernandez deal back when he, uh, you know, running his. Tr- you were actually the first person to break that he had, was possibly homosexual. Were you not?
0: That is a, that's a whole new podcast, but yes, I did because, and listen, the only reason it's relevant and I say this over and over and over again is because it was the motive right. for why he killed his future brother-in-law, old mm-hmm. Lloyd. Yeah. And I think that old Lloyd's mom had a right to know. Yeah.
1: Well that, that might be part two. So we'll leave you guys hanging with that for the next time we get together, <laughs> Michelle, I'm happy you can stop by. I appreciate it. You're welcome back. Anytime.
0: Well, you're amazing. So thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Hollywood Wade. That was Michelle McPhee. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Michelle, we appreciate it.
0: That was awesome. Thank you.
1: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. What an episode that was with Michelle McPhee. Now, I hope everyone enjoys that episode. If you're interested in some of Michelle's books, please head on over to her website. We're going to have that in our show notes on the YouTube side of things here. We'll probably put it on our Facebook post as well. If you want to go over there and pick up some of her books, she got some on the Boston bombing, you know, mob story. Like I said, some other true crime books. So head on over and check it out. Check out her podcast as well. We'll probably put a link to that in the, uh, show notes as well. So you can go on and, uh, enjoy that. Like I said, Michelle was a natural for the show. She fit right in. I love her accent. As she talked about in mind, we have, we both have very thick accents, her being from Boston, me being from South Carolina, but we hope everyone can manage to get through that and enjoy the show. And if you did enjoy the show, please go on over to YouTube, make sure you like, and subscribe to the channel that really helps us out over there. Also, if you're an audio listener, please make sure you like us over there and give us some five stars, you know, show us some love over there. Let us know what you're thinking. Even if it's not five stars, you know, if there's something we can improve on, I'll take criticism too. You can throw it my way. I'm not above that. I'm always looking to improve the show, improve the quality of the show. So if there's anything, you know, that you guys think, Hey, maybe tweak this, tweak that. I'll definitely take that under consideration. If I'm able to, I will try to take care of that for you. Now on the social media side of things, please go on over to Facebook. You can like us on Facebook, uh, at crime and, and symbol, not a N D, but the and symbol entertainment that brings up, uh, you know, that'll, that's a difference for some reason. I don't know why it doesn't automatically bring you to us. It won't, it won't show up for some reason. So make sure you use the and symbol now on Instagram, it's crime, the letter in entertainment, somebody had, that other username, so I could not grab it. So crime, the letter N, and entertainment. So go on and give us a follow on there. We're also on the TikToks, ladies and gentlemen. We put out little clips of the shows on the TikToks, so you can kind of see if maybe that week's episode is something that you would like to see. Uh, and that's really all we ask. you know. Share the show, share it with your friends. We're trying to get the name out there. We're trying to get things you know, boost it up, trying to pump out some great content for you guys. As I said the other day, I was in New York a few weeks ago, you know, working on some stuff. We've got some great stuff coming up for you guys. So make sure you like and subscribe to everything. So you get that notification when we drop something new over the next few weeks, we'll probably be dropping some independent, uh, YouTube videos, uh, maybe on the audio side of things too. I'm not sure yet, but we're starting to get a a really hefty backlog so I'm going to probably start dropping every once in a while, a video in the middle of the week too. So uh, give a little bit more content out there for the channel, helping people notice us and, you know, trying to grow the channel. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of those. Cause it might not just be every Sunday. It might throw one out there in the middle of the week. So guys, I really appreciate you joining in this week. I really hope you liked that episode with boston's own michelle mcphee please go give her a follow on instagram go check out her podcast she does fantastic work and hopefully she will grace us with her presence again here on crime and entertainment